Every reenactor knows you can't reenact without stuff. But what really goes into making something as complex as a complete uniform jacket or a helmet? To find out, we talk to one of the best and most respected vendors in the business in this episode of The Reenactor's Corner. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner Podcast. This is Chris here again with Ben. How are you doing today, Ben? Great, Chris. Great to be here. Nice, sun- nice sunny summer day. Yeah, it's a little warm for my taste, uh, <laughs> but, you know, that it's that time of year. Let's just jump right into this episode because we have a very special guest today that I'm really pleased we're able to bring on. He is uh, Mike Depre from FJ Verick. Mike, thanks for coming on the program. Glad to be here, Chris and Ben. So Mike is a, uh, he's a vendor, and we are going to talk about stuff that he makes. Uh, but Mike, let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in World War II? Well, geez, you know, uh, like like most reenactors and, and, and just about everybody else that's interested in, in World War II, uh, I'm a history buff. Um, and uh, it was... Growing up in Central Mass, there's a place called Brimfield Antique Fair that I used to frequent every year with my parents and uh, even uh, other family members and just going through the aisles and, and looking at the uh, the memorabilia. And at that time, back in the 70s and 80s, you were still able to find a lot of World War II um, memorabilia in, in uniforms and helmets and everything else. Um, and that's how I just fell in love with it. I've always been interested in history. I think uh, just, you know, history is, is, is something that, you know, everybody should study and, and you can predict the future with it. How long ago did you get started in reenacting, Mike? Uh, reenacting, uh, again, uh, um, it's all started at the Brimfield the Antique Fair. Uh, I was there wearing a, a hat that I bought from New Columbia, um, that was a, an online uh, store that was uh, specialized in, in, in World War II gear and such. And um, somebody noticed it at a table uh, that I was looking at uh, some memorabilia. And uh, I said, oh, you came from New, New Columbia. I said, oh, are you a reenactor? I didn't even know what that was. I really didn't. And I said, what is that? He said, oh, it is a, a, a groups and uh, groups of people. They uh, recreate World War II. Wow, uh, I was fascinated, and I said, "Well, I'd, I'd be interested in that." I gave him my name and number, and, and within a couple of weeks, I was contacted by uh, Vin Milano from uh, uh, from a unit that was uh, based in uh, Massachusetts and throughout New England. How long ago was that? Uh, that was 1990. That was uh, wow. yeah, the early days of uh, reenacting uh, in, in this area. Um, yeah, it was, I would say, uh, the, the spring and summer of 1990, right when I got out of college. Yeah, I mean, New Columbia, that's an old-time name. Yeah, that's know? that's old, and, and yeah, yeah, that goes back when you mentioned New Columbia. In fact, I think I still have a catalog by them somewhere. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, that's sound sort of piece of, uh, you know, piece of reenacting history right there, you know? Yes. I don't think we've had anybody on the program who's been reenacting or who reenacted back then. Uh, what were events like back in the early 90s? 
Um, they were interesting. Uh, you had all sorts of um, people coming from everywhere and, and really like a hodgepodge of uniforms. You, you did not have the vendors then like you do now. Uh, many of the uniforms were really homemade. There were some individuals made their own uniforms. Uh, you did have your go-to people. Uh, you like New Columbia. Uh, you didn't have the Asian market, you, uh, the European market. This was before the internet now. Uh, so you didn't have, uh, you just get on the internet and uh, uh, look for somebody uh, uh, making uniforms. Uh, you did have one gentleman in Europe, uh, everybody still knows him, is uh, Yankee. And uh, there was Bill Burrell, he was the distributor for that, you, and he was, he was the high end. And the low end, you had just people making them, really, on their kitchen table. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's when the days of the Swedish conversions, um, and that was acceptable, because that's all you had. That's wild. Yeah. Were a lot of people wearing original uniforms then? Uh, yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, for my summer... Um, um, uh, Blues uh, tunic. I, I wore a uh, herringbone, an original herringbone that I bought at Brimfield uh, Fair. Wow, like a four uh, pocket or a two pocket? It was a four pocket M forty three. Yeah, uh, very late war. It even had the original blue buttons. Wow. And I remember when I first wore it at an event, uh, people were saying blue buttons. What are those? Uh, just people did not know because sure. you didn't have the original examples, um, and you didn't have the a lot of the books and the, and the research that people have done even knew what those were. Uh, but yeah, you had, you, uh, I remember people wearing the original parkas during the winter time because nobody had parkas at the time, uh, camouflage, uh, everybody, as far as equipment, Zeltbonds, bread bags, uh, you know, uh, K98 pouches, everybody had original gear. Makes and sense. I can't imagine, I mean, uh, one of my first rifles uh, that I had was a, a, a World War II vet bring back all matching. Wow, wow, um, that's what you had. I mean, but it was plentiful, and you know, you look back on it, and it was kind of, it was amazing how many things that were plentiful. You look at it now, uh, I can't believe I was doing that. Uh, was that four pocket HBT original tunic that you wore? Was it expensive when you bought it? No, no, no. It was a hundred dollars. Wow. That's yeah. a, ten times as much now, or more than yeah, that. Yeah, no, it, it was thousand euro. Yeah, it was it was a hundred. It was a hundred dollar uh, because it was um, HBT. It was a cloth. You know, it was looked down upon. Wow, um, incredible! Wall, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. funny how yeah. surplus goes up in value. You know, like I remember when I was a kid. Um, I think Vietnam stuff was pretty cheap mm. still, yep. and now that's going up in price. And uh, you know. I remember like those East German helmets being like twenty five, thirty dollars in a surplus store. Now it's like I don't know, eighty, a hundred bucks on eBay for one. So, oh yeah, yeah, yeah stuff it, goes up in price. Yeah, Army Navy stores around here, you could you could find Vietnam yeah. equipment for for you know back in the I want to say the eighties and nineties for very little money. Sure, very little money, and and you know now forget it. Mm -hmm. um, you're going. I don't want to keep going back to Brimfield because, but that's where I all where it all started, and I really think that, you know, people, uh, you know, it, it's still out there, uh, but back in the day at Brimfield, it was nothing to see Civil War uh, era uniforms, hats, um, but that was a rarity. It was mostly uh, I bought a lot of World War One 
uh, era uh, doughboy uh, equipment and uniforms, hats, very plentiful because you got to realize a lot of these antique dealers, they'll go into a house and it's all about cleaning out the house and whatever's in there. And those days are gone. I mean, most of the houses now they're cleaning out. Perhaps it's World War II, but mostly it's, it's kind of maybe Korean and, and Vietnam era um, items that you're seeing now that are called antiques, uh, which is kind of scary. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, what was uh, modern equipment now is called the antiques, uh, but we're all getting old. The march of time. <laughs> Such is the march of time. So how was it that you came to start um, looking into... You know, getting stuff made and, and selling items to reenactors. Yeah, um, great great question, Chris. Uh, the reason why I started making it uh, is I, I I'm one of the, the you have as you know you have two type of reenactors and I'm was one of the person I wanted to wear the best um, that there is. I wanted to look the best. I wanted to wear the best. And um, at that time, you really could not find um, really high quality items. Um, when I say high quality items, the right material, the right thread, the right buttons, uh, the right cut. Um, so, you know, I always looked into buying the best. And for years, uh, it was it was lacking. And then um, fairly recently, when I say recently, about 10 years ago, you know, you had the Asian market. They flooded the market. Uh, that's probably more than 20, probably 20 years ago. They flooded the market with uniforms. Uh, it became very inexpensive to buy uniforms. But the, to me personally, these just weren't right. Um, I didn't like the cut. I didn't like the, the thread and, you know, the, the material. And I said I could do better. Well, Mike, we talked about this off air. Uh, you told us that uh, you had purchased the top of the line reproduction FJ smock and it wasn't good. It wasn't up to your standard. And so you made mm. your own. Yes, um, I admire that mentality. Yeah, no. I, well, I was. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I was happy um, with the cut of it and everything, but um, I wasn't happy with the quality of, of the camouflage print and some of the, the, the lining material. And, and I, I inquired about, well, can I get one custom made? I want this. I want that. And they wouldn't do it. You decided to do it yourself then, uh, which is uh, very enterprising and that's really, <laughs> admirable. Really, yeah. I had no really no intentions to start a business, but uh, yeah, I, I just really wanted uh, to have something done how I wanted to have it done, and and I and I saw a need for it uh, because other people, I said, well, if they can't, they can be just like me. They they want it a certain way. They want it just like the original how it was made. Well, I have I have two points. First of all, yep. um, you focused very specifically on Luftwaffe and specifically Fallschirmjäger, yes. uh, which I mean is is interesting, and we can talk about that in a, in uh, in a minute. But also, too, you had a story about. So it's my understanding that you started with helmets, no? Yes. And you had a nice story about how you purchased a original FJ helmet and you wanted to replicate one. Do you want to relay that to uh, our audience? Oh, well, that's that's a. It's a <laughs> with my, my my father bought one for me years ago as a kid. Uh, well, I was a teenager. We went into a an antique store and it was a helmet, a German helmet, and he bought it for me. And it ended up being I didn't even know at the time it was a German paratrooper helmet. Wow! And I had it for years. I played it with it as a kid, and um, I ended up selling it. Do you remember what shell size? Did it have a decal? Uh, well, I'm, I'm a, it had to be a, probably a, a 68 shell because I'm a 58 uh, centimeter um, 
head size. Okay. So yeah. that means it's a 68 shell. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to think of what exactly it was because it was uh, had spanner bolts in it. I remember those because that, that's a strange uh, uh, looking bolt to to um, you know uh, Americans. Um, you know, we don't we don't see those too often. So I, I knew that was strange, and it, and it did have a Type Two strap, uh, which is the most common type of uh, chin strap harness for Falchimaga helmet. Um, and that's about it. It did not have an eagle on it, hmm. so which is strange because it had spanner bolts, and it did not have an eagle. Did it look like it might have been removed, or was it reissued? No. Do you think? No, no, it, it was. It, it did not have an eagle on it because you know uh, even my father and, and I, we, you know, we both know German helmets. And we had usually have decals, and this was just a plain Jane. It was it was a strange duck. Wow. And when I went to sell it, the person I sold it to, I don't even remember his name. Um, he was a friend of Bill Shea's, and I'm sure everybody out there know, knows Bill Shea. Um, he was excited to get it, and uh, but I look back on it, you know, that's hey, that's what kids do. Uh, I was a teenager, was cash in, in hand, and away we went. Well, for, for people who maybe don't know about how rare these helmets are, the, the original Fallschirmjäger helmets uh, now, you know, like a basic, complete helmet could be over $10,000. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If it's a nice thing, I mean, if it's a, a presentable Fallschirmjäger helmet, you're looking at $10,000. Wow, and and you know more rare versions like the earlier double decal helmets, uh, even more than that, you yeah, know, significantly. Yeah, yeah you, th you throw some camouflage paint on it, uh, especially if it has some paperwork behind it. Yeah, you're in you're, you're into um, a brand new car range. Ooh. Sure, twenty twenty five thousand dollars for a helmet. It's, so it, it yeah. is crazy. And even just the metal shell, if you have an original shell with no liner, with no paint, mm -hmm. that's a hard, very hard thing to find. Yes. And it is going to be a very expensive thing to buy if the person selling it knows what they have. I've only yeah, seen it. A yeah, usually, uh, yeah, shells, even even rusted, ground dug shells, if, if it doesn't have holes in it, uh, may have some pitting in that, but they're, they're $1,000. Yeah. Uh, you, you could sell those every day for $1,000. Uh, Incredible. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's, um, they made a lot of them. They really did, but they're very highly desirable. You know, sure. I, I know per people that have in their collection, they have tens and dozens and 20 paratrooper helmets. So there's a lot out there, but, uh, they're a lot less common than an M35, that's for sure. Well, I mean, we were speculating uh, earlier on the production figures. Um, Mike, were you there for that when we were doing that? No, no. Ben and I were wondering, you know, how many paratrooper, German paratrooper helmets mm. were manufactured to begin with? You know, what, what do you think, Mike? Is it, is it a matter of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands? Well, I mean, you have to look. I mean, the, the uh, Falschmager units, I mean, it, it was a, a, a good size organization. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, uh, there were thousands made. Sure, uh, but there were thousands lost. As it yeah, time. attrition. You know, you, know, it's, so yeah. you, you have you have to look at it that way. Uh, there were definitely thousands made, but I will tell you the most common size shell made was a sixty-eight. Um, Makes sense. I mean, that actually kind of correlates yeah. because a sixty-eight it, it was uh, it it was what lot, sizes? Yeah, sizes uh, a fifty-six, fifty-seven, and a fifty-eight. And uh, at that time, uh, people say, oh, that's a small head. Well, no. It, it actually, that's an average size human head. Uh, the largest shell they made standard was a 71 centimeter 
which is a 59, 60, and a 61 centimeter uh, line, uh, head size. Uh, there are examples known that were 73s for wow. larger heads. Very rare. Yeah. There's only a couple known to exist. Uh, you know, and, it, and then there's even a 66 shell, which is a for a, a 54, um, no, a 53, 54, and a 55. That's what I would consider a small head. Makes sense, but yeah. They, they, you, you, you can find 66 uh, original helmets that are 66 centimeters large so so you know you've you're kind of in this um you know just kind of to think about how you started making these helmets mm -hmm. um uh, you know you weren't the first person to make uh reproduction Fallschirmjäger helmets right but you wanted to make the best ones Th that's correct um i think i as far as a, a reproduction Fallschirmjäger helmet i believe i'm the second because the checks beat me to it um, and they're a famous, uh, uh, it's a helmet out there, a Czechoslovakian made reproduction shell and also liner. Um, supposedly they were made from the, on the original machinery. And it is an excellent looking shell. I, I, I don't know that for sure. Uh, they're, they're actually very rare as well. Um, I didn't know that. That's cool. I mean, reproductions yeah. are collectible in their own right uh, in, in, a, in a strange sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, a, a reproduction Czechoslovakian shell. And they're all 68s, by the way. Um, they're very they're rare to, to find in, as a reproduction. And people seek those out. Um, so I came second. And um, I had uh, started making shells. Jesus, this is over 10 years ago. Uh, I contacted in in. in I don't know if any, if anybody's ever tried to have anything made from scratch. It takes a lot of research and a lot of time back and forth. And uh, again, I have to uh, thank the internet uh, because before that, it would have been just writing letters back and forth to to companies uh, or phone calls. But uh, I can't understand some of the languages. Well, that, uh, Mike, I I. I understand that a lot of this would actually be considered a trade secret, and rightly so, because I feel like you've earned it. But the way you described your process to Chris and I, it is truly an international uh, operation that you're running, because you're having different parts made in different countries yes. by different manufacturers, then you're assembling them yourself here in America, which is, it's it's truly remarkable. Uh, do you have any kind of, a, like, a sales background that you want to comment on, or any kind of a background that in sort of international business yeah, like how was it i mean i think a lot of people can relate to the idea of wanting to make something or have something made you know but how do you make that leap you know was it something in your background that was a skill where you were going to be able to reach out to these manufacturers and you know make them you know have stuff made according to your specifications or make parts for you or whatever it was yes no no i have a sales background um I have a sales background in medical sales, um, which is you know, worldwide. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I have some experience talking to manufacturers, uh, telling them what you want, um, and also negotiating um, the final price of the item that, that, that you want. Yes, uh, no, you do need some skill, and, and you also have you need negotiating skills, um, and also you you hey you have to be a salesman. Um, you know you. you <laughs> All these companies you're dealing with, you know, they think your General Motors calling them up and looking to buy a million pieces of of, of something. 
and that's just not the case on my end. Uh, but they don't know that. Um, so in order to get things done, you have to, you know, you make promises, uh, you try to meet the numbers, and if you don't, you don't, you know. Um, but uh, you just, you know, that's the way, that's the business market. And uh, dealing with, um, you know, other people across the world, you know, they want to do business with America. Uh, I think there's a feather in their cap as well. Oh, yeah, we're doing business with somebody in America. They don't know how large I am. Wow. You know, and... Um, yeah, that, that's, that's how I got started. That's really interesting yeah. insight. You know, a helmet is such a complex thing. You've got the shell, um, but that's only one part of the story. You've got to paint it. You've got to put decals on there. You've got to get all of the other parts that hold the suspension in. And, of course, with the Falschmager helmet, in addition to the liner and the liner band, there's a foam padding and all of this stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I've got to think that it must have taken a lot of effort to be able to source all of these components, have the components made, have them be the same as the original. You know, how how did you I don't know. I have yeah, no idea how you did it. I appreciate doing this because now people really are going to understand what it takes to make something like this. Uh, you just don't go to uh, one place and they have it all. There's absolutely no way. Um, I get the shells made in one place. I get the bolts made in one place. Uh, the liners come from uh, just a leather portion of 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 the of the liner. I get it from one vendor. The metal ring I get from another vendor. The rubber, actually, the rubber portion is the only piece, uh, unfortunately, uh, that's made in the United States of America. Uh, yeah, uh, it's one part I can find here um, that's die cut. In the United States, but everything else, unfortunately, it's made overseas. Different countries, different continents. I mean, it's crazy the amount of contacts and effort, you know. Yeah, I mean, the reason why is a lot of a lot of the the ways of the past are lost. Uh, the way things are made. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, you just they're not around anymore. So yeah. you actually have to I hate to say you have to almost go to a third world country. That are using some of the same techniques, yeah, the same materials, back eighty years ago. Well, it's funny. I, I have a distinct memory. I, I took a trip to Morocco when I was in university, and uh, I was just walking around the streets of Tangier, and uh, there was. Uh, I just remember I walked by like a street blacksmith, you know, and uh, I I don't think I've ever seen anything like that here in America. But you know, they were they were making what looked like wrought iron gates or something. And it's, I, I, I'm sure there's places in America that make rod iron gates, but they weren't doing it like out in the street like that, you know? Well, you know, Ben, ben and I have talked many times about um, how kind of time marches on. And as we get further and further away from World War II in time, the technology that was used in World War II becomes like less and less relevant in a lot of different ways. So I totally hear what you're saying, Mike, that, you know, maybe uh, uh, countries that... There, there may be other places in the world that aren't America that are still using old techniques that are able to replicate stuff that looks like stuff that was state-of-the-art during World War II. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, Chris, we and I talked about this in the Patreon episode, but uh, how, uh, you know, New England had this famed industry for salt cod and how that was basically lost due to, you know, changes in technology and the introduction of refrigeration and how that's salt cod used to be really cheap and now it's more expensive than refrigerated. Well, you mentioned 
Rod Iron Gates, Ben. I don't think Rod Iron is even available anymore. I think sure. the last mills that created actual real Rod Iron. Have yeah, closed. that's a bit of a more sort of pertinent example. You've got to go overseas for it. Yeah, look, I mean, look at the you know the the woolen industry in the United States. I mean, the woolen industry was huge at one time, and and if you're going to get wool now to make World War II era uniforms, you're going overseas, unfortunately. Yeah, you, you really are, and and a lot of the other materials um, that you know we'll talk later with with, with all my other garments. Unfortunately, you can't buy it here. You really can't. And, and if you do find a mill that's willing to weave it, you know, it would be 10 times the cost. It really would, unfortunately. But that's, that's a situation that I think everybody knows that we're in. Yeah. It's sad, but it's true. A couple of weeks ago, Ben and I and Mike all met, and Mike was uh, kind enough to bring samples of uh, the products that he makes so that Ben and I could take a look at them. And I, it was super impressive stuff. I really enjoyed looking at it. And one of the things that struck me the most was the paint on the helmets as well as the texture. Um, this is something that I've probably read, I don't know how many posts on Facebook about how can I get my helmet to have the right texture, arguments over you know whether a helmet is textured enough, whether it has to have texture or not. But uh, a lot of the helmets that I see out there have, in my opinion, uh, too much texture. Whereas, uh, Mike, the helmet that you showed us, or the helmets, had texture that was, I think, a perfect match for like unissued originals, you know. And to me, to be able to create a paint finish like that is just an incredible skill, you know. And I, I mean, how did you, how did you come to figure this thing out? No, no thank you. Again, a lot of trial and error. Um, yeah, at um, when I first back in the eighties and nineties, the nineties when I when I started reenacting, I mean people were putting, you know, almost like rough gravel on their helmets, thinking that that's what they look like. And just by handling more or, original finished helmets, it's a very it's a, it's aluminum oxide, but it, it's not very rough. It's it's a it's it's very fine. And the only, and it's uniform all the way around. It's not sprinkled on. It's not thrown on. Uh, it's not brushed on. Uh, a factory painted World War II German helm is only can only be achieved by putting aluminum oxide with some other ingredients through a spray gun and paint it that way. That's the only way. And also, if you're able to, if you can put it on a turntable. Um, like a, um, a potter's wheel, if people are familiar with something like that. You can put it on a potter's wheel, but it, it obviously doesn't go as fast. But that's how you get a uniform uh, textured finish on a helmet. Um, that's the only way. Any other method, it just doesn't come out right. And I stress that uh, people recommend like, sprinkle it on or what. It, it, it just doesn't work that way and also the a lot of the companies that are selling the aluminum oxide it's too of a heavier um, grain to begin with mm. um, in fact there is some um, information where there's one person that did a, um, a research on it they actually used which makes sense spent aluminum oxide from machine shops or whatever they had going on uh, it wasn't brand new aluminum oxide. It was already spent, so it actually—it's not as sharp. It has more of a, a, a of a of a softer finish to the aluminum oxide. Um, 
that's what uh, one person did research, and 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 I I would I would say that's that's probably what they did. That makes total sense, and uh, thank you for sharing that knowledge. I mean, I know a lot of what you do, you you know, regard as a trade secrets, and rightly so. But yeah, it, I mean, it was an industrial process. These things were made in factories, and I mean. I know us reenactors were trying to duplicate that in our garage, and you know, sometimes yeah. we succeed, sometimes we fail. <laughs> yeah, no, hey, listen, I, I did the same thing, and, yeah. and, and it, it would, it, you know, I thought it was was good until you didn't compare it to an original helmet. It's just not. It has to be sprayed through a gun. Um, yeah. That's 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 the that's my belief, and and. Um, you know, I hold true to that, and that's how I. My helmets are all uh, all the finish, uh, the textured finishes, uh, are sprayed through a gun. And granted, there's some um, uh, you can get one that's a little bit more textured than the other, which is natural for an original helmet. Um, I've seen some that are almost smooth, and then some are uh, uh, have more of a texture finish. But it's never so much where it looks like it was it's sand of some sort that was used. Well, we. We talked about this, uh, you know, previously in the helmet episode, but uh, I think a lot of Americans have this misconception that these things were heavily textured um, because, I mean, American helmets in the war, they had that, you know, the heavy crushed cork texturing, you know, and, uh, you know, some helmets of other nationalities are pretty heavy on the texturing, but not the German ones. And some original helmets, you know, that we've talked about this a, a little bit before too, Mike, but, you know, with wear and getting touched and rubbed uh, you know after 80 years these things do become smooth these things were more textured back in back during the war years yeah and actually they, they become because it was such a fine texture you can look at an original photograph especially when the sun's hitting the shell you could tell it i mean if it's a single decal you know nine out of ten times that's going to be a textured finish but it looks shiny yeah in the photograph yeah because it was a fine texture and as is being used uh, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna catch a glare. I've even seen this with some of my reenacting helmets over the years, where I get the thing and uh, it's very sort of matte uh, when I initially have it, but then you know, hand like the like finger oils and wear and in the field, and these things they do become shinier. Yeah, I mean, if you're fortunate to find um, a, a a what they say a minty. Uh, World War II helmet, a uh, wartime helmet, uh, you will see it, it's dull. I mean, the paint was flat, yeah. uh, very matte finish, um, but the, you know, the texture is very fine on it. Uh, but, you know, a well-worn helmet, well-used, uh, combat use, it's, 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 on, it's got glare on it. It's, 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 it's a smooth, shiny finish that, when you look at it. Another thing that I was really impressed by when we looked at the stuff that you brought was uh, the helmets that you had kind of uh, aged yourself. And uh, you mentioned that you had some tricks of your own, which I, I totally understand. But um, it was just really interesting to see helmets that had been weathered that looked so naturally done, uh, which, you know, it, again, that's a skill. I mean, the, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is just I, I was impressed by the amount of different skills that went into the reproduction helmets that you made. Not only the shape of the shell, all the components, uh, but also the paint and even, in, you know, how the paint, how you were able to weather the paint on the ones that you did like that was really cool. Yeah, well, th yeah thanks. Of, uh, yeah, that, again, that, that's something that, you know, comes within, with time, trial and error. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll keep those techniques to myself. They, 
they uh, they come out very well. Um, you know, I did I do post them online, and I get a lot of compliments. And um, yeah, but it, it's I it's nothing like age to age a helmet over time. I mean, there's there's nothing that replicates that. But if you're gonna try to to um, uh, to do it, uh, you know, it just uh, it's a techniques that I have. Well, us. I'll say this much. I mean, what you've done to yours, I feel like it does simulate, um, like, I would say, you know, a couple of months of field use, you know what I mean? And, I mean, these things, like, as soon as they left the factory and got issued, they started, you know, gaining wear on them. And, I mean, it takes... It takes a few reenactments to, you know, get oh, your oh, helmet yeah. broken and, in. And, 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 and I, th I think that's, that's... I think that's the best way of of aging things you know obviously you know you, you use them but if you, it, there is there are techniques with everything with uniforms and and, and such um, that you can make it look older yeah there's this no, there's be no doubt about, about distressing it. things and, you, know. you know nobody wants to, to show up at a reenact reenactment uh, looking like oh he's the fng um <laughs> you know so uh, there are ways of, of of fitting in right away um and as far as the helmet goes it, it, it doesn't take much um to, to, to age your helmet, you know, just you know, rub some dirt on it, rub some grease on it, and there you go. That's cool. Uh, but to try That's to make cool. something look eighty years old, um, that is truly a, a, a to, uh, it's an art. It really is. Makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. So um, eventually, you came to a point where you decided to kind of jump off from just doing the helmets and make uh, other types of items. Yep. Uh, again, it, it was it came to be where. Um, that, you know, I, I bought a, a, a smock, um, cause I was, I was interested because I, I, I made the helmets. I got, I got made false Omega helmets and I what, what's next? I said, well, I might as well make the smock because it's very unique to, uh, the false Omega uh, reenactment community. Uh, there's no other, you know, units that are wearing false Omega smocks. So I ordered one, uh, from Europe, um, and I received it and, um, it was it was nice. Uh, it was probably probably the best on the market, uh, but I didn't care for the 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 the, the, the colors. Uh, they weren't bright. They weren't you know crisp, um, and you know just some of the the, the, the materials that were used. I just I thought it was kind of blah when I got it. You know, I wasn't overwhelmed like wow, look what I have. It looks just like an original. Um, and from there, I said, geez, well, I wonder if I can make this myself. And boy, what a, you know, I, sometimes I think, well, what a mistake this was. But um, it, it's really, it was something became of an idea, then a hobby, and now it's a business of, um, of really truly creating something um, that I feel um, that hasn't been made in 80 years. There is something to be said about uh, if the best thing on the market isn't good enough, you make your own, and you make it better. And I have seen your product, and this is not a paid endorsement. It is the best I have ever seen. Um, so, yeah, something that impressed me about your sort of attention to detail is uh, you refuse to use polyester thread making your smocks. And for the wartime versions, you specifically used different colors of thread to to basically duplicate the sort of wartime uh, economy uh, 
basically these things were made in factories uh, and they were just kind of whipping them out. So yeah, you, yeah, you it, used mismatching thread intentionally. Exactly. And, and um, you want to believe how hard it is to get, because uh, obviously I don't sew these by myself. Uh, I have people sew them and, uh, you know, I contract tailors, but to have people that are used to making men's suits and I show them, I show up with a bunch of different colors and shades and uh, I want, you know, this thread, uh, this color thread that's uh, completely different than what you would use if it's a men's suit. I'm, we're talking, let's say, you know, a natural colored cotton thread on a dark garment. They're like, what? What are you talking about? you got to use a matching thread. Very difficult. It took time to make them understand what what this is all about you're making it you know a, 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 a wartime garment that a military that they would make it has nothing to do with matching colors and it's very difficult and and uh but i i've achieved it good and, uh, you know it, it's that's what i wanted i think that's what you know people that 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 want to buy these items look for because that's how originals were made they're not all cookie cutter type of a garment well, I mean, it's funny. You um, you have it's not it's 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 damned impressive that you have basically nationwide and international suppliers for parts and components, and then even and then regionally you have all these you know tailors that you subcontract out to, and it's just from a managerial perspective, it's it's really really impressive. Well, th- thank you. Um, uh, yeah, and it, and it's. And it's difficult um, to, to manage uh, all the different because uh, it's just not one manufacturer. I wish it was just one person making everything, but you, you just can't do that because if you did, then everything will start looking the same because it's coming from one manufacturer. So I have the M42s and a lot of the equipment like the gas mask bags and the grenade bags are made in, from one tailor. Then I have another tailor making the M38s and m 40 smocks uh plus uh, uh they have just started doing the uh Luftwaffe ground smocks as well um so you get a, you get really because from one manufacturer to the other you do get some different techniques and such uh and that's what you try to achieve one anecdote that you shared um which if you're comfortable talking about on air you um you said you found the only manufacturer in all of China to make a certain a certain kind of zipper. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I, I I love talking about this because uh, uh, people don't realize when you deal with China, you know, they're twelve hours ahead. Uh, so when, when it's noontime in in Boston, Massachusetts, it's midnight there. Yeah. They're sleeping. <laughs> so in order to deal with the Chinese, um, you know, most Asian countries, um, you you need to deal with them. At midnight, which is their noon, you know, that's noontime. So you, 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 I usually start at 9 o'clock at night, and uh, that's when we start, you know, texting and, and, and emailing back and forth. Sure, the start uh, of their business day, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the start of their business day, yeah. and it's this, this the end of ours. I mean, most of us are sleeping. So that's what it takes to run an international business. Um, but uh, it took me, because everybody, you know, the re-re-zippers, again, uh, the, the the smock that I ordered from Europe had, I want to say in parentheses, re-re-zippers. Uh, there were nothing like a wartime re-re-zipper. Uh, they were white, and I was about, it was, they were white and they, were, they weren't even plastic. That's right, they were metal, mm. but they were painted white. Wow. 
So they weren't they weren't a wartime re zipper. So I said, well, I need to find one. And it took me, I would say, a good year uh, to find what I believe is the only Chinese manufacturer, or probably worldwide, that is able to put plastic teeth onto a cotton zipper tape. Because, as you know, anybody that owns any sort of clothing, everything is all polyester and nylon as far as zip is, the tape itself. Uh, and if it is cotton, okay, metal's fine. I, I could find plenty of manufacturers that put metal teeth on a cotton tape, but not plastic. Um, it took me a year to find this uh, company, and uh, again, uh, that, that's why when you find these these companies, you're not going to just disclose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I did. I, I found the company, and, and wow! I mean, I think they came out great. There was yeah. a, the, the final addition to this. Um, you said that you um, they for whatever reason they wouldn't stamp the Riri logo on it, so you did that yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah. So I, so I found the only company in China that's willing to put plastic teeth and also make the 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 uh, the, the correct pull uh, that replicates the World War II era reread pull. Um, but they were not; they didn't want to put the logo on it because Riri is still a, a, a current company, even though the logo is different from the current logo. Okay, I understand. So what I had to do is I got the logo made uh, with, with a you know uh, from a, a die maker, and so on. I, I heat stamp it individually. Wow! So I do that myself. Incredible. Uh, yeah. So just one more step. It'd be, it'd be great if the zipper company did it, but no. So I have to do it. But that's what it takes. If I mean, if you're gonna make something. And if you're going to charge premium, if you want a premium garment, that's what it takes to make those. Now, um, that's that's really remarkable. You also, so you talked about how, um, so the the M38 and M40 Fallschirmjäger smocks, they were made out of what, the Greenmillerts? Uh, Grunmillerts? Yeah, Grunmillerts, yep. That pronunciation, I know. But uh, you said what, you had to you had to send a, a sample of an original to, uh, uh, like an original patch to uh, to a maker overseas to uh, to get that, to get a perfect match? Yeah, um, yeah, I sent a, a piece of an original uh, material. Uh, it was it was cut from a, from a tunic, uh, from, from a smock. Um, I sent it to, to, to China. Uh-huh. That's that's where it's all made, uh-huh. um, and and they they copied it, um, the piece I, I sent them. And now I've had, you know, since I've been selling the the, the smocks now for for you know close to three years. Uh, obviously, I've had different runs, and just like the original World War Two era runs, they're different from each run. Even though, <laughs> well, there's a beauty in that. You yeah, know? there's yeah, truly I a mean, beauty in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, and fortunately, that's fine because now when I when I make conversions, or some people like a mixed run, you know, I you don't want pocket flaps this color. I want the sleeve this color. I can do it. That's crazy. Um, that's crazy. That's, that's how the original garments were made, and that's that's what can be done now. Sure. So, Mike. Why don't you let us know, for people who don't know what your range of offerings are, what garments do you make and sell now? Okay, well, yeah, again, we'll, we'll start with the helmets. I I, I, um, uh, I make the um, uh, Falschimega M38 Stalham, uh, and that comes in a couple of different versions. Um, comes with its standard uh, Stalham, and it, but then also I do have a late war flared edge 
shell, which was introduced in 1944. Um, it was a very short run. Uh, it it kind of replicates almost like a, um, a standard M42 shell. It has the, the, the outer rim, even though it's rolled, it is flared out. It kind of mm. looks like an M42 shell. It's very unique. It's uh, cool. kind of a rare shell. Uh, you can see it in books. They're out there. Um, and so I, I make the helmets, and uh, I also make, uh, obviously, uh, uh, the smocks, uh, starting with the... Uh, it's not the first model. Uh, it's it's kind of difficult because some people now have, have books like first model, second model. I go by the year when it was introduced. Uh, the, the M36 smock, uh, that's the one with the zippers all the way down to the knees, all the way up to the chest. I do not make that one. That's the, actually a pre-war prototype smocks. I do make wartime smocks, which is the M38, uh, the M40, and then from there uh, I make the M42. Uh, I do have them in Grumelette. Uh I also have them uh, in uh, Bromelet, which is uh, leftover Luftwaffe flight uniform uh, fabric. Um, again, they were using everything and anything. Uh, they did make a run out of those smocks. They actually, on both fabrics, they did print Splinter B or Splitter B onto those both fabrics, and they made jump smocks out of them. That's so cool. So I offer that as well. And the M42s, I offer that in um, uh, Splitter B and also a Sump 43. And right now I have Sump 44 in development. Uh, we're at the stages of. Um, they're having the material, the correct material made. I'm just not printing that on a uh, run-of-the-mill type of material. It's actually going to be 100% rayon, uh, very tight woven. So you're going to get that drape. It's all about uh, the look, the feel. Uh, it's just not the camouflage. It's the look and feel of the uh, garment when it's being worn. Uh, so the, the, obviously the material has to get made first, and then we're going to... Uh, print the sum 44 on it uh, that's right, so cool right now my garments uh all the camouflage is being hand done uh, i do that myself uh, i control the colors and what's nice about that you do get a, a multiple multitude of range of colors so when you when you look talking wartime german garments you're going to get different shades throughout um, yeah, it, I was, is it a roller printing process? No, no. Screen uh, printing. Yeah, no, I use a um, you know, roller printing is, is, is for high industrial. That's when you're printing, you know, thousand meters. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the quickest possible way. Um, uh, that's how it was originally done, but I, I do this by hand, by hand screening. Uh, and this gets, is in it, your it gets, same, it gets the same effect. It's not digital. Wow. Um, I, I can spot a digital print a mile away, and if people are. Um, if, if you do have any knowledge with printing itself, with, especially with, with fabrics, uh, digital printing is, is nowhere near uh, what the original ones wow. were, were done. And, and, and that's why uh, I'm getting away from that. Now, you also make some of the other accoutrements for Falschermiager, too, like the gas mask bags. Yeah. Um, anything else? Yeah, no, it's amazing. The unique equipment that was for just for the Falschermiager, uh, obviously the gas uh, gas mask bag, because, you know, they, they didn't want to jump with a hard you know, can uh, strapped to their chest or, or back. Uh, so they developed it. It was a bag that the gas mask fit into. Um, which was strange that the, the, the filter was unscrewed from the mask, and that was put into the bag first. 
and there's a, a, a rubber plug that plugs into that. Wow, that's cool. And then there's a mask. Uh, other people that reproduce that bag do not have the uh, plug. So a lot of people think, oh, well, the whole the whole ma gas mask uh, assembled was in the bag. That's why a lot of the reproductions, the bag is actually too large. Mm. Because an original one, you could not fit an assembled mask inside the bag. So I didn't realize that. I, I thought, oh, gee, you know, <laughs> it makes sense to have it assembled. No, sure, it, sure, it, totally. Because everything, like anything else, they're trying to make it as small as possible. Wow. So I make those, uh, and, and they come in different you know, uh, types of fabric. Um, you know, it's strange that, you know, the early, the, 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 the Luftwaffe, they use a blue color. It's like a blue-gray color. Yeah. All the way to the to the green-gray, and, and, and at the end, they made olive, and they made, like, even a natural canvas color. You and, make uh, uh, bandoliers, too? Yeah, you showed yeah, us some yeah, of those? The band, those again, really, that was another really spe nice. specialized equipment for the Fallschirmjäger, uh, for the K-98 rifle, which, you know, again, uh, you know, most Fallschirmjäger carried, just like a, an infantryman, a K-98 rifle. Uh, they weren't all issued MP38s or MP40s. Uh, they carried a, a rifle. They were riflemen. Um, so uh, they were issued a, a special bandolier um, they, you know, that hung around their neck and uh, they fit uh, K98 stripper clips. Mm -hmm. uh, they originally were uh, different designs. I make the, uh, the Model 3. It was the last model. So it's, for people, it's a rounded pocket type. And uh, they made those in blue and they also made them in... Um, uh, split split a beat camo and a late war they had a, a an olive color uh, and most of the time when you see those are multiple they were made out of scraps and the pocket flaps are different colors than a body and straps are different it, it, it's pretty unique your reproductions it's really cool looking it looks like it's scary real you all, you have like the correct uh, the prim stamps you know it's 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 awesome yeah and again that's it's all the little fine details and um even when and i really the the reason why they look original uh in pictures or when you hold them in your hand it's all about the material that they're made out of uh, sure. most most um people will make them out of cotton Cotton is, is, is cheap. It's, it's inexpensive. Uh, it, I make them out of, uh, if, if they're cotton, it's got a rayon or a linen blend. Uh, the later stuff, it's completely rayon or completely linen. And all the thread is cotton. Uh, so it, you just, even how, the, like, it's all about the drape and how they hang off of when the, the person is wearing them. It, it's just like an original. It goes back to, I mean, we talked about economies of scale earlier. We're back, now cotton is cheap, but back in yeah. the 1940s in Germany, the cheap materials were, they were rayon, they were linen, you know, and cotton was prized, and it was saved for certain applications. Yeah, yeah, they, 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 lost, so, they, they lost their, uh, yeah. their, their cotton imports. Yeah, you're right. Uh, so they were, they used artificial cotton, which is made from, from rayon. Uh -huh. And uh, they used what they had, and... Um, I think that's what makes it you you know interesting collecting this, and also uh, uh, that's why I make it that way. That's uh, really cool. Yeah, I mean, just to think about what goes into a smock where you have to actually source the fabric, you know, have the or have the fabric made, and dye the fabric or hand screen print camouflage patterns on it, you know, source the thread, then have it assembled. You know, plus all the hardware, all the different components that go into it, the zippers and snaps. It's just, uh, I mean, it it must be a uh, 
a labor of love for you, would you say? Yeah. I, I, I consider myself crazy at times um, because, yeah, it, it's just, uh, you know, uh, that's dating from when I originally started reenacting, that's how I wanted it. I wanted to, to, to have the best. I wanted to just look like an original because, obviously, you're not going to be running around with an original garment. But if there's somebody out there that's making something that's just like the original, I wanted it. And I can't tell you how many times um, I would buy the, oh, that's the hottest thing on the market, what I thought was. I got that, I wore it, and all of a sudden there's a, another better item came along, or, or else I didn't know somebody else that was making something. I, I really want to actually help re the reenacting community that um, you buy something, you, you won't have to buy anything again. You know, that, that's, if you buy an M42 smock, you, you're done. And you say you do sell to collectors who they might not have the budget, which is, I mean, it's tens of thousands of dollars for original smock, no? I mean... Yeah, and, and that's why I started aging the helmets, because, yeah. uh, you know, as we talked about, the, 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 how rare the helmets, like I said, how desirable the helmets are, and how expensive they are. You know, I don't know about you, but I can't afford 10000 up to $20,000 for a camouflage Falschmjäger helmet. Sure, I can't. I so, mean, yeah, so if, if, if somebody has a, 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 a collection, but they want to have a Falschmjäger helmet, yeah, you got the China, if you want to buy a Chinese or an Indian-made helmet, yeah, be my guest. Or you can buy something that it's very hard to tell that it's not an original. I respect um, that. Yeah. I respect that. And, I, and the same thing with my smocks. I, I know a lot of collectors, uh, they have mannequins and stuff. You know, the smock, we didn't talk about price of smocks. You know, they're, they're in the tens of thousands of dollars a range. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, it's, really, it's really, really crazy. And I just can't see how people would afford it. But if somebody wants to have a display, there are options out there that you can get something like, you know, hey, just like an original. No. The thing about Falschermiager is, I mean, granted, some FJ units, they got issued more sort of standard kit, but it really is its own kit. Um, so it's cool you catered at that, but um, I know you have your reasons why, but do you care to share to our, our audience why Falschermiager? I mean, just... Um, you know, that, that's a great question. I really... Nobody's ever asked me that, and, you know, I just... Uh, I think it all dates back from the time when my father bought that that helmet for me in the antique shop you know that was my first actually it's a second piece of of of, of memorabilia i ever had my grandfather brought back a luftwaffe hat That's from cool. world war ii um, really cool. it, it was a it was a signal corps you know enlisted men's visor cap um, right. i still have it today That's i still awesome. have that and you know so i i don't know i just it was always uh intrigued about the um the falschmiega and um you know, you, you have to put your direction somewhere because if you try to go into a hundred different directions, I don't think you can ever get it right. I think you, I really just concentrated in one area. And I know there's, there's gentlemen out there that, that uh, right now uh, I'm, I'm good friends online with a gentleman that's starting just right at the, it's a newborn industry for him, is uh, SS Camo. And I don't even know where, to, I don't even know anything about it. And because I know that's another whole, we could spend an hour talking about that, and I have no idea what I would be talking about. But sure. again, so so that's what he's concentrating on. And, and 
I, w I would be silly, foolish to go into something like that. Uh, I, I think really to get things done right, correctly, you have to really concentrate on one item. Yeah, whether you're reenacting or collecting or you're yeah. making things, yeah. I feel like it's having a specialization, I feel like, instead of being all of the Yeah, party. because, um, you know, you know as, as we all know, I mean, if you start trying to collect everything... Um, you go crazy. <laughs> World War II German. I mean, you, you, yeah, you, you, it's never endless. I don't. I don't think you'll ever be happy with collecting because it's yeah. just, just too much out there. Um, you know, I, you know I, I collected German firearms for years, and I tried to say, "Oh, I'm going to have every one that they were issued." Oh, you come to find out, good luck. Issue, <laughs> a lot of different weapons. <clears throat> You know, so and then there's some that you can never attain. You know, like the the uh, the FG42. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, I'd love like one that. of those. Just, Everybody would love one of those. Yeah, but, oh, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Just, yeah. Why not? Why, why not? But uh, just some things you can never attain. Sure. And uh, but hey, that's why they're making replicas that are that are damn good. That's cool. So that's cool. Those then, I mean, those things are pricey too. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you want something done right, in in in. If you want something that's that's just like an original, you have to pay for it. You know, or do it yourself. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned you know you have to pay for it. How do you, with everything that goes into your products, how do you figure out what price tag to put on those things at the end? Well, obviously, I know what I'm paying for for, for items, and uh, so yeah, so I, I get a dollar uh, figure of of what it costs, all my costs. You know, right now I, I do a lot of the work myself. I, I do I do control the cutting of the patterns, and because I think that's very important, because uh, that's how uh, you can control the different shades of colors. Uh, what what I what I give the 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 the, the tailors um, uh, each individual smock or any sort of item, it's all cut, it's packaged just for that item. I'm talking everything down to, except the thread, I give them in bulk. But even the breast eagle, the snaps, the elastic for the cuffs, uh, you know, linings, it's all wrapped up into one package. It's labeled, and this is what they, they, they build that one particular smock. Um, so I know exactly what they charge me for that. Um, I know what it cost me for the elastic. I know this, I know that. Um, and then, you know, I have to make some money. And, and, I, and, I, and I put something on it. But as far as my labor is concerned, it's, it really is, Chris, you're, you're right. It's a labor of love. Um, I, really, I, I really like doing what I'm doing. Um, I think every garment, uh, every helmet I make, to me, it's a work of art. And I think uh, from hopefully for many years to come, people will say, oh, that's a uh, F.J. Verick item. Uh, I, it'll be recognized as as uh, an FJ work item and, and top of the line and, and that's what I strive for I'd like to be I want to be known as uh, if you, top of the line item where is the biggest market for your reproduction stuff oh that's another great question yeah um, if it wasn't for Europe I'd be out of business <laughs> uh, and, and actually you know what and second is Asia um, third place is uh, United States it's really uh, funny very, yeah very, uh, you, the Europeans um, uh, uh they appreciate high quality, and they're willing to pay uh, for that high quality. The Asians, uh, for some reason, because they, they, you know, that's where it seems like most of the stuff is coming, the run of the mill, I would say, is coming from Asia, but they are very intrigued by high quality items as well. 
Um, so there, there, it's it's funny. It's it's a it's a huge market right now. I'd say the Europeans, Asian, and then third place is the Americans. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, I don't. I. I don't. I don't get it. I really. I really don't get it. Uh, I wasn't one of them. I. I always wanted to to wear the best, look the best. Apparently, the fashion is is just not the Americana anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. It's one of those events you can't really describe it. You sort of have to be there because it just felt so much like you were actually in Normandy. I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage. But I do think that there is room to grow. A lot of reenactors probably had like some sort of burnout maybe from like years past. It sucks, but it was a pretty good pause for everyone to kind of like regroup and like kind of like a really nice refresh to get back out there. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. Well, Mike, I think we could probably talk about this for hours, but uh, we're running out of time. So how could um, people get in touch with you and see the stuff that you make if they're interested in learning more about it? Um, you know, uh, I have a, a, a Facebook page. It's uh, FJ Verk. That's uh, F-J-W-E-R-K-E. And also, um, I do have a website. It's uh, uh, com. Uh, you'll get a uh, has all the pictures of all the items I sell. Uh, uh, there's some um, uh, in-depth descriptions uh, of the garments, and uh, there's pictures of the different materials that they're made out of that I, that I offer. Um, so you can get a hold of me through there. Um, uh, you know, I'll answer all the questions. I, I help a lot of um, collectors uh, that are restoring helmets and, and such, and, and people that that uh, really first time buying any sort of Falschimjäger item, uh, try to help them as best I can. Uh, but I, again, for, for all the reenactors out there, I think the best thing for anybody to do if you're looking to, to get into it is really join a unit. Um, and and, and they will, they'll, they'll steer, you, steer you the best way because that's what, that's what I did. And uh, rather than just um, going out on your own, um, that's my recommendation for, for those out there when it comes to that. Well, Mike, thank you for sharing your knowledge and some of your uh, trade secrets, you know. Um, and, well, not, uh, not, not all of them, Ben. Not all <laughs> no, of them. Fair, fair enough, enough, fair enough. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's truly inspirational to see, like, what one person with a vision can do if they really put their mind to it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I tell you, if, if, uh, if you see some, if, if you can't find something out there and, and, and just you know, go ahead, make it, you know, go ahead. Look, you know, that's what I did. That's and really it, cool. There's, there's, there's uh, plenty of opportunities out there for that. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, would love to have you back on again sometime because I feel like we're just scratching the surface, really. Yeah, truly, yeah, truly. There's, 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 there's so much for everybody to learn, and I, and and that's what I, that's what's great about this hobby. You, you learn something every day, and and especially when you talk to other hobbyists, um, it's fantastic. I feel that. So just a couple of quick notes before we go. I'd like to thank everybody who supports us via Patreon. Uh, it's really very much appreciated, and without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do this. Also, I did want to mention that uh, hopefully by the time you hear this, we will have made some T-shirts. I don't know if um, I'll have made them available yet. Probably not, but uh, keep an eye out for those coming soon. So I know I've threatened this before, but now I'm really <laughs> Very good, Chris. Okay, so... Uh, 
Thanks again, Mike, and uh, to Ben and everybody else out there, I will see you in the field. See you in the field. Look up. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not let us know by reaching out in all the usual places, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And maybe think about supporting us via Patreon. No matter how happy or small, your monthly donations make a huge difference. And as ever, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing the podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and will join us here again at The Reenactors Corner. 